Welcome to the James Quandall Show, the space where I interview the world's experts and share how you can live your life to the fullest, be present and connect deeply with others, and build the life of your dreams. On today's episode, I sat down with Tommy Newberry, the New York Times bestselling author of The 4-8 Principle. For more than 30 years, Tommy has coached greater than 1,000 business leaders and their families to success not just at work, but also in their faith, family, wealth, health, marriage, and many other areas. Tommy challenged us to imagine our dream life 30 years from now and then work on making that dream a reality. He asked you to consider what would happen if you were unafraid of anything in your life. If that were true, what would you do differently right now? And to imagine a life where you only dwelled on the positive and negativity was by appointment only. Finally, we discussed a lot about parenting and the importance of preparing your kids to deal with adversity and to say, this is great, when they have a struggle they need to overcome. There's so much more to uncover in this conversation, so please give it a listen and enjoy. Before we were recording, we were talking about to talk about your your book the daily guide to a joy-filled life living the 4-8 principle and what i wanted to tell you was typically i would take a book like this and sit down in one or two sittings and finish the whole thing and i sat down and started to do that and i read about a week of the book and then i was like hold on a second this is different i need to I, first of all, I knew immediately it was outlined to be a daily read. and But typically when I get a daily read, I'm like, nope, not going to do that. I'm just going to blow through this and then circle what I can circle and come back to it later. But within one week, I realized this was set up completely different. And each day had so much wisdom and time set up for reflection. I needed to slow down. So I, this is one of the first times I've had a guest on this show that I hadn't finished this book before the guest came on. So I just want to let you know, but it's in a good reason that that happened. Yeah, I like how you were able to spin that to a, a productive reason. <laughs> and it's because I really need to slow down and actually go through this the way you set up. And I never do that because I usually just say, I'll just revisit it later. And so I just love how you did that. Why did you feel like it needed to be set up that way versus just a traditional nonfiction setup? Well, I, um, I, I think it's, it's not about just the information or the ideas. It's about the application. And it's very rare um, that somebody learns new information, particularly a lot of information or gains a lot of knowledge and then turns that into something practical. So what I've learned in coaching for three decades is that it's not about what you know, it's about what you do. And what you do comes from implementing what you know on a gradual basis. And so it's, if you just read a book, if you, it, all of this is kind of going into your, your mind, it's going into your soul. And if you read a book all at once, there's only so much of it that you can retain and then spit back out. It's kind of like if you decide, you know what, I'm going to take a week's worth of vitamins Sunday. You, you know, there'd be a little bit of a backlash from your body. And I'm not saying it couldn't be done. Somebody couldn't tolerate that. But for optimal effect, it's like you, um, with working out or with your vitamins, you take a little bit in, you practice a little bit, you come back for the next phase, you practice a little bit, 
And really the best way to grow is the same traditional way that we grew up growing and that we went to the first grade, the second grade, the third grade. We didn't try to cram it in. I mean, there's a lot of problems with education, but um, the methodology of of being at one level and then going to the next level. So this is kind of like that in the sense of, I want you to be changed when you put the book down. If you read it all in one sitting, which I have done what you've said also, I'm, I'm more informed, but I'm not changed. And so I want to be in the business of changing, not just informing. So how did you, yeah, that makes sense. I'm curious how you decided what went first because you kind of started the book almost giving an example where you're like, hey, who in here thinks that they were designed for something great? And it's like everyone in the room raises their hand. Yeah, 100%. Okay, now what are you doing about it? <laughs> like if you believe that, then what are you doing about it? How did you start the book like, how did you know where the order to put it in? I mean, there's so much here. You know, I, I, um, I, this is a sequel. The Daily Guide to a Joy-Filled Life is a sequel to the 4-8 principle, which was written in the traditional style, which you probably could read from beginning to end as fast as you wanted, and you would be more informed. So then I love second iterations, third iterations. You know, I love being able to, revisit something and make it a little bit better. So I remember thinking to myself, what would increase the chances that somebody would apply this? And so I thought, all right, number one, I've got to do a better job of selling my points of selling what I am wanting them to do differently. And then I've got to organize it in such a way that it's doable because new information that is not actionable, that nobody does anything about, has very little value. It, it, it decreases in value instantaneously. Um, so I think I did a better job of selling the why of a mindset based on the very simple words of the Apostle Paul, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's lovely, pure, true, gracious, just, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think on these things. Uh, today's vernacular would simply be focus on the good stuff because um, there's always going to be the bad stuff and the good stuff. So why not focus on the good stuff? So to get you to implement it, I thought I'd break it down. And so I remember thinking, I think this, the kind of this, the part you're alluding to is I would, I remember, I think I first did this at a, at a commencement address for a high school. And I said, how many of you believe God has great plans for your life? You know, and of course everybody either, thinks they do, or they see that most people are raising their hands or they hope God has, you know, and, and they raise their hand, but then they don't necessarily leave, lead their life like they believe that. So there's a, there's a disconnect. And I thought, wow, that explains a lot. There's a, a, a disconnect. Why is it? I mean, imagine how cool it would be if you actually, if, if God whispered in your ear, James, I've got great plans for you. I've got your back. If you could somehow like 100% believe that, it would change everything. That's, that was my argument. So 
you would always make one more phone call, wouldn't you? You would you yeah. would always go, I gotta pick up I gotta send one more email. I gotta make one more phone call. I gotta knock on one more door. Like it's gonna work. I just have to keep going. <laughs> yeah, and it would also be that the second that the worry seeped in to your head in the evening when the day didn't go quite as you planned, that you go, you know, you think I trust God. He's got my back. And um, it, so it's not just the extra rep or the extra phone call. It's those things for sure. I'm a big believer in, in still working hard, but working hard on the right things and then knowing when to say I've done all that is reasonable and now I need to invest time with family, which will make me better tomorrow or invest time in sleep or go get a, a workout but worry contradicts faith. It impedes faith. It interrupts faith. And worry, you can't touch it. You can't grab it. But it's up here in your mind and you can't worry without thinking worrisome thoughts. And that's why I think the, the words from Philippians 4.8 are so powerful because it says what it's like your to, to think list. What should you think about? Well, I should think about what's lovely, pure, true, gracious, just. And I shouldn't just think about them. I should dwell upon them. So that doesn't mean there's any problem with, you know, seeing a billboard that's negative, but, or having a, getting upset with something that's not satisfactory. You just don't want to live there. You don't want to hang out. You don't want to marinate in negative thoughts. I mean, there's a lot of negative things going on in the world. You, people have difficult relationships. You have difficult team members, employees. Things are frustrating. So you can address the problems without marinating in all that they mean. You know, focus on, on you know, focus me. People say it so much, it's like a cliche, but there's focus like you were, like we were talking about earlier, which was, um, focusing on a task, but there's also, where does your headspace go most of the time? Where does your headspace go? How do you determine if you're just, the billboard's a cool example, because you could drive past it, see it and go, oh, okay, there's a billboard. And then you move on and go about your day. But how do you determine if you are ruminating too long on these things to where it's now unhealthy and it's it's not good? Um, I think it comes out in your your emotional life and your demeanor, particularly your interactions with others. I, I, we, we feel what we dwell upon. And I, I, that's almost like the last thing that I like to say in a, a speaking engagement only relative to the four, eight principle, which is that really is the four, eight principle. In essence, that's the practical value of the four, eight principle. You can say the four, eight principle, the, the principle is focus on the good stuff in your relationships and your life. But the practical applications, we feel what we dwell upon. So if we feel rotten or resentful or angry, that means for sure that we've been marinating in what is rotten, you know, what makes us feel resentful, what makes us feel angry. There may not, there, there may be some irritations in our life that are legit, but when it affects your emotions, that means you put too much energy into it, negative energy. So we feel what we dwell upon. So when I feel awesome, like I do right now, talking to you, that doesn't mean everything in my life is awesome, right? 
But if I felt crappy right now, that doesn't mean everything's crappy in my life. And so I, I get frustrated with people that they're like, well, that's just how I feel. You know, it's, it's like they haven't like there are they are they are um, the servant of their emotional life. Like they have no input in their their emotional life. Like it it just falls out of the sky and and uh, despair or uh, negativity or resentment just falls on their head and they can't do anything about it. And that's not the truth. The thoughts lead to feelings. And if we can get in control of our mind, we can get in control of our emotions. We don't need to be perfect. And everybody can get, if, if I'm walking down the hall or I'm walking in a room and the TV's on and there's a news story, I can see it and I can get a little bit irritated, frustrated, but I need to be uh, aware enough that I notice it just like a bug jumping on my arm, you know, at a picnic. And I don't run, you know, I don't run and scream and panic. I just brush it off. And so we need to be aware, okay, that's a negative conversation. That's a negative story. Okay, I'll pray about it. Is there anything I can do about it? No. Okay, I need to put my mind on something else. Um, so it's a, it's part of an overall mindset is you, you've got to, it's like, how would you, how do you know when you're eating clean? Well, you can judge it by what you're eating maybe, but probably the better way to judge it is, is, is how do you feel the next day? How do you, how is your body working? Do you have enough energy for the important people and projects in your life? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Do you think that if you don't put up, I don't, maybe the word could be hedges or barriers or walls or fences or armor of some kind, if you weren't deliberate about this, having this attitude, you, would you just const, I mean, to me, if I lift my head up and look around, all that stuff's everywhere swirling around me and I see it, then I have to put my head back down. I can't pay attention to it. <laughs> Is it everywhere? I mean, it, like, if you aren't deliberate, are, are you going to get overwhelmed with it? I think you are. I mean, I, I would, I mean, and I've been teaching and coaching and, and writing about such things, but you know, my, my degree of vulnerability is like everybody else's. Maybe I have a little more awareness, but you know, anybody can fall is one thing I've learned and observed in life. Anybody can fall. So you need to have your guard up, but it's all around. And when like, when, when you've got two or three things in your life that are really going well, you have an advantage, right? So it's kind of like you're in a groove, life's going well, and so these other things on the periphery that are really negative or even toxic don't bother you that much. Okay. So that hopefully that's where most people are. A lot of the time they're, they're in the middle and their life seems pretty good. There's a negative here and there's a super positive here, but when a storm comes along as they will, if you have not trained yourself to be alert to your mindset, then it's going to, you, you can't, you can't learn, for example, the principles of of the four eight principle you can't learn the the mindset principles in the middle of adversity so we want to take we want the four eight principle to take people's joy to the next level and we want them to be prepared for the storms those are kind of the two things so 
I have found like when somebody's going through a tough time, I, I don't ever, and I have discouraged friends and, and readers and clients from sending the 4-8 principle to people who are in a crisis. You know, they, they've had a relationship crisis, a health crisis, financial, or whatever, because that's not the time. When is the time? The, the time is ahead of the storm. You know, the, the time to batten down the hatches and to prepare for adversity is before it hits you, because once it hits you, um, you're, you're a little bit frantic, you're a little bit tunnel vision, uh, a message particularly like focus on the good, focus on your blessings seems a little bit trite. But if you raise your kids, for example, to realize that at the end of every day as you're tucking them into bed, that that day was full of good things and not so good things. And let's inventory the good things before we go to, to bed. Let's seal the day with strength. And then that can become an, a, a, a lifetime habit uh, where I, I remember there was a um, there was a group. I don't know whether I wrote about it in, in the Daily Guide to a Joy-Filled Life, but there was a uh, ministry called YWAM, uh, Youth with a Mission, mainly an international uh, ministry. And I was at a fundraiser, small group of people, maybe 25, but the, the leader was was saying, you know, with, with so many bad things, I remember she was standing up, very nice, met very well. She said, uh, with so many bad things going on in the world, how could there be a God? And I mean, that's a question, that's kind of a valid question. And this was uh, 15 years ago. So <laughs> it probably seems more like a valid question now. And and I was sitting there and I had not written the book yet. And, and it was probably rude a little bit, but I just kind of raised my hand. We were sitting on some steps and she was down there at somebody's house. And I said, well, couldn't you look at it like this? With so many good things going on in the world, how could there not be a God? And I, I kind of like stumped her. And it's, it's true. I mean, I've been, I've been married 28 years and marriage is good and bad. But our, my wife joked, we joked a long time ago that, you know, she's got, she's got negative qualities. Wait, this, this is recorded, right? You better say this right, because I'm going to send this to her. <laughs> I've, I've got 20 negative qualities. She's got 10 negative qualities. Um, but the quality of our relationship, and we've, got each, we've each got a bunch of positive qualities. The quality of our relationship, though, which is what matters, not our individual qualities. The quality of our relationship is going to depend upon whether she focuses on what's deficient in me or, and whether I focus on what's deficient in her or what's sufficient and what I'm grateful for and what I'd hate to wake up tomorrow without. Because I think kind of, this may be ludicrous, but I think everybody that is, every man that is married is, uh, is married to a wife that is good and bad. You know, every marriage is good and bad. And we help bring out the best in the other person. When we're dating, it's like we put on the 4-8 goggles and uh, we see what we've decided to look for when we're dating. Maybe it's a, a trick of God, nobody'd ever get married, you know. Um, <laughs> but we see that, and even we might have a friend, and I mean this nicely, you might have a friend or family member says, well, have you noticed this and him or this and her? Are you sure this is the person? And you're, and you're like, I don't see that at all. That's not that big of a deal. That's small. And then you get married and it kind of, it, 
if you're not careful, it kind of flips and you start thinking maybe God put you here to point out the deficiencies in the person that you're married to. And that kind of becomes your new mission. And it doesn't happen like falling off a cliff. It happens little bit by little bit. You know, you, you gradually start doing that. But uh, we, we, bring, we see in other people what we think about them when we're not with them which is how I think that explains how people fall in love and how people fall out of love. We see in other people, we notice in the person we're married to what we think about them when we're not with them. And so if people can go back to their dating days, because it's kind of a metaphor for all of life and all of mindset. When you were dating somebody and you started to think, okay, this might be that person and you were falling in love, when you weren't with them, you were thinking great thoughts about them and anticipating the awesomeness of seeing them again the next day, the next week, whenever it is. And when people drift in the wrong direction, they're driving home, rehearsing flaws in their spouse or, you know, contemptful questions that they're going to ask, is this done? Did you, did you do what you said? And it's a mindset 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 nothing really changes health relationships or money until you get your head in the right place and that's probably the biggest difference in my coaching now than in the 90s i didn't i knew it was important but i didn't understand it was essential that when i see people turn their marriage around they turn their mindset around first hmm. when i see them turn their health around they had they had a, a switch had flipped and they had turned their mindset around first. And the same thing with money. People struggle for 25 years. Finally, the, the switch is flipped. Then everything starts happening. It's like they could have had it sooner if they had put a different mental blueprint in, if they had changed their expectations and their beliefs. And maybe they weren't ready to have it yet at that point. And so they didn't. And once they were, once they were ready, they had it. And um, you know, my wife and I have been married two years now, and uh, I have this idea, and it hasn't caught on yet, but I've written about it and talked about it, and I said, why does a honeymoon have to end? Okay, you, you get married, you go on a week or two weeks, maybe a month if you're really blessed, and you're on a honeymoon, and then it ends, and then it's like, all right, we're off our honeymoon, now we're just, we're not newlyweds anymore, we're just married. And I keep saying, well, no, 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 no. Our honeymoon isn't over. We're still on our honeymoon and we're still newlyweds. Why on earth would I change that mindset? Is, do you think that's an okay way to think about it? Or do you think in 10 years I should say, hey, okay, we're off our honeymoon now. Now we're, we're an old married couple. I don't know. <laughs> no, and I, I think that's just like mass hypnotism. I mean, it's a cliche when people go, well, the honeymoon's over. Or the or oh wait until seven years it gets really tough there. Yeah, so that's like people who've maybe been down the road that you're on, and they are sharing that with you, and that poisons the well. So if you know that, like ahead of time, you can mitigate it because by making sure that you are doing the things that you did to win your spouse over, that you are reminding yourselves of that person's positive qualities, 
that you are thanking God for that person on a regular basis and you're employing, you know, the golden rule, essentially treating the other person as they want to be treated. Um, and, and if you, if you stop doing those things, it's the problem is like, you know, if you eat a cheeseburger, you know, on a big white bun three nights in a row, it's not going to be the end of the world. But if that becomes a habit, then it's going to blow up your health and fitness goals a little bit at a time where you don't feel it. Um, I think that's the biggest way, not just with couples, but individuals drift. It's like being at the beach, you know, and you're out in the water and all your stuff's up on the, on the sand and you don't feel it at all. It's so deceptive. And all of a sudden the current has carried you a hundred yards down the beach and you look up and, you know, if you're a little kid and it happens, you think who moved our stuff, <laughs> you know? And then once it's happened to you a few times, you realize, okay, the stuff didn't move. I moved and drift happens little bit by little bit, you know, people don't get 10 pounds overweight by that one cheeseburger. It's, it's a little, an eighth of an ounce at a time and they get more and more comfortable with the new normal. And I think that happens in relationships. Um, especially relationships tend to be mirrors for many other things. And for some reason, when we want to fix it in finances or in health, this is so common when, it took 10 years to get where we are, but we want to fix it in three days. And it's like, uh, well, no, just stick with it for six months and then look back and say, hey, did I make a difference? Am I moving in the right direction? But you can't just, you can't flip it overnight. Why, like, how do you, when you're when you're talking with friends or family, like, encourage them just to take, take their time? Like, it's gonna, like, just day after day, like, it adds up, it stacks, it starts to grow. It, it's the, it, it comes down to kind of a, a intersection of wisdom where you realize that your best decisions have, when you made, have made your best decisions in life, you factored in the longest time horizon. And, you know, how is this going to impact me a decade from now, three decades from now and so forth. And the worst decisions typically the ones we regret or wish we could buy back, we said, you know, how is this going to make me feel in the next 15 minutes or the next hour or the next day or something like that? And if we, so you first have to shift and, and become somebody that is long-term focused because today is, you know, today is the long-term of a decade ago. Today is the really long-term of 20 years ago. So you're creating the future. It's, it's going to be become your present before you can realize it. So make decisions now that, that you're going to be in love with then. So that's the kind of the philosophy of it, the wisdom of it. And then the other is just kind of how our brain works. We, we need to do things over and over and over again. Um, we, we have to do in order to become, in order to have. Do you have any tricks for celebrating small victories? Like if you, it is for me, it, it's, it's about recognizing when you've made even a tiny bit of progress in the right direction and then having some pause and celebration. I'm 
awful at it personally. I am a achiever and a competitor and I achieve a goal. I'm like, okay, great. Here's let's, where's the next one. I don't even slow down to like celebrate it. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm a believer in celebrations because I think as far as I can understand, our brains love to replicate, uh, prior recent performance. And so in other words, so if you get on a trend, the trend continues until something on the outside breaks it off. So there's easy things you can do. You know, you can have a, a digital document or you can have a little notebook and literally you're logging your victories. And it, it doesn't seem much in one day. It may not even seem much in one week, but I'm telling you it's transformative in a month, just one month. And so you could write it in a journal, you could put it into an Evernote doc, or you could dictate it into your phone and it doesn't make any difference which way you want to do it. But the pause, whether it's five seconds or 40 seconds, the pause and acknowledging I'm, I made progress today, this worked today, um, whether it was a positive interaction or something else that begins to lock in that mindset. I, I had a process that I used with my, my oldest son who, who's now working with me, Ty, and he had, a, a tremendous amount of, uh, learning challenges. So dyslexia, auditory processing, um, some ADD type stuff and the, you know, so he's 27 now. So the, the information and the technology to strengthen those things were, were not very much developed back then, but I just believed because of the line of work that I was in, that I didn't have to accept the norm. And I thought he was innately very intelligent, intelligent, but I knew that the world, the classroom, the teachers, everybody else that didn't have those issues would create kind of a negative reinforcement loop for him. Because when they would read, when his person sitting at the desk next to him would read easily, he would be struggling and he couldn't finish things as fast. And then he was naturally more distracted and so forth. So I thought, okay, how do we counteract that? So I developed this process of every night uh, identifying what the three wins were for the day. And so I'd ask him, you know, what, what were three wins? And so a win for a six, a six-year-old, seven-year-old, eight-year-old um, could be a compliment from a teacher. Um, it could be uh, a something that he finished. Um, it could be a something he learned. He was very much, he liked to learn. So uh, what you learned, what you finished, or what somebody said nice about you. So we would write it first because he couldn't write. I'd be the reporter interviewing him for his day's story. He's already in bed and I'm jotting these things down. And so he, he would say, well, the, you know, the math teacher said that I was getting better and that he could see the progress. And I would say, well, how'd that make you feel? And I'd jot that down. And then the final box was, uh, how can you build on that tomorrow? And so then you get a little bit further and it's like, I was the first in my group to jump off the lake house boat dock, you know? And then in other words, they kept elevating and escalating. And so then he learned not knowing that he was learning. That was maybe four or five minute drill every night for years, you know, from six to 11 or something like that every night. 
And I remember I would call him when I was out of town and we would do it on the phone. And then if something happened, it didn't look like it was, you know, mom turned out the light and cause it was kind of a ritual that we had. He'd, he'd go like, Hey, I haven't done, you know, the focus. And so he learned it little by little, made it no big of a deal. And we closed it with a positive affirmation. So we made him think cognitively open-ended questions that could be any answer he wanted, but they were slanted to draw out what he should be grateful for. And then the, um, the, the next question is actually one question, which is what would you like to accomplish tomorrow? So this is a six year or seven year old. And then a, a positive affirmation such as you are a beautiful, wonderful child of God. Um, mommy and daddy love you forever, always, no matter what you have, what it takes. But, but none of that made any much effect in a, a couple of days. It was the fact that we just made that a habit, but he learned how to think through that exercise. And then fast forward 20 years and he, he graduates from college with a degree in biomedical engineering. So there is no, there is no limit really. And, and his elementary school teachers would have scoffed at the idea that he could have uh, been a chemical engineer of any kind. That story it really hits home for me because I was the kid in school that couldn't focus C's and D's. Teachers always thought I was an underperformer. I would distract other kids. I couldn't read a book, couldn't build a card house, couldn't sit still long enough to do any of that. And the seeds of success <laughs> and realized now, thank God, right? I like I I learned to think outside the box and, and just lean into it and appreciate my outside the box thinking. I, I also found out I really couldn't work in, a, in the corporate world either. I uh, did that for a long time and was really good at it. But I just always had outside the box thinking that just didn't really fit in with that world either. And so entrepreneurship was just a natural place for me to go. But it's just, it's the world isn't set up for, for kids like myself and your son to feel validated that we are, are valuable. Right, but the advantage in that is that uh, they can get more if somebody's aware that that's how things are and you address it, they can actually come out stronger uh, at, at the other end because they've had to deal like Ty had to deal with adversity that most kids didn't have to deal with. Um, uh, he later ended up tearing his shoulder. He was a very good athlete. Later ended up tearing his shoulder in high school and kind of messed up his his career. And, and I said, well, you remember when you it was such so difficult to learn to read and that adversity actually taught you to learn better and faster. He, he got interested in some of the super learning techniques and how you remember things. And, and I said, well, this same adversity with your shoulder, I wish it didn't happen, but now that it's happened, you're going to end up being a more prepared for life because getting good at life is really getting good at dealing with the adversity that comes your way. And I think that has played out uh, well with him. Um, so we don't want those things, but, but we want thing that, that parents can do is to try to prepare their kids to deal with adversity. Um, because you don't really know who you are until you're hit with some diversity. And then that's 
when the real you, good or bad, comes out. And if it's if it's kind of bad, uh, then that's just like a indicator of where you should work on on your growth. It doesn't mean anything awful or permanent. It's just we we have this adversity, and it we should use it as a defining moment to make ourselves better in some way, whether that's a relationship adversity, health adversity, whatever it is, we can flip it. And if we don't flip it, then it's kind of like we wasted it. That's true. I, there was a guest on this show, Christy Wright, and she has a great story. And I remember she had such a positive way of looking at the bad things in her life. She basically would look at it and almost immediately flip it into, well, that's going to be a great story later on. Yeah, I love that. And she's a public speaker and a podcaster and author, and she has that gift. When she speaks, it's like story after story after story, and every one, I'm like, I completely relate to that. But it's because as she goes through those trials and tribulations, she doesn't just like try to forget about them and move on. She tries to say, well, what did I learn, and how can I retell that story to someone else? And think of how much different that would be if, if we could all do that. Right, right. I love that, that framing. Um, I used to get clients to say, you know, when, when something happens, you don't have to tell this to the people that are around you uh, because they may not get it, but um, say, this is great. <laughs> and it's, it wasn't great, but, you know, so you lose the deal that you thought you had. I, you know, train yourself. There's no law against it. That's what I would tell them to say, this is great. They said, well, what's not great. And I said, but by telling your brain, it's great. You're, you're really telling your brain to look for what's great about it or how it could turn into, to put it into Christie's words, how it could turn into a great story that this, this, how do you know that this deal that you were so excited about closing wasn't going to be, be the most onerous, high, high maintenance client that you've ever had to deal with. And you're going to regret that you ever took them on. Maybe this rejection was a protection of some sort. Maybe it's divine protection. And you are now going to be freed to go to the next level. Or you, you're going to dissect what went wrong, perfect the sales process, and then be able to close a bigger deal down the road. And I would just go through examples like that. And I said, I said, maybe I'm wrong, but does it do harm when a little bit of adversity comes and go, that's great, or a little bit of bad news? And I'm not talking about, you know, a, a tragedy or something with somebody's life, but just the the daily and weekly and monthly difficulties of being a human. Um, that's great. You know, why not? I'm trying to think of the uh, that's great of of we're recording right now and I'm at my parents at my, my dad's house up in Michigan and there's construction across the street and they're working on the stuff in the house and I'm going I'm sitting here and I keep hearing noises I'm like oh man I hope this audio turns out okay and I'm like well I'm trying to find the silver lining right now based on what you're saying um, I'm trying to use your your I try to put basically when I learn something I put it in I try to put it in play immediately because it's going to be gone if I don't so I'm trying to think What's the great news? Well, it is, I don't know. You can't control everything. That's one thing. You can think you're going to be able to control. Oh, I think we lost each other. At this point in the conversation, Tommy and I lost internet connection, or I guess I lost internet connection, and we had to reconnect 
what perfect timing for me to have some time for a little self-reflection. Anyway, thanks so much for listening to this episode. Before I put you back in the show, if you're enjoying this episode, please leave me a review wherever you're listening and uh, send me an email or a tweet or an Instagram message at James Quandall on Twitter or Instagram. And I'm just so grateful that you're listening to the show and you're the reason why I do this. So if there's anything I can do to improve or guests that you'd love to have come on the show, send me a note. Now back to the show. I found the silver lining while we disconnected, actually. And well, you know what was weird was you were talking about that issue. It was almost like it was intentionally dramatized there. Yeah. So what, to back up in case the audio dropped out, I don't know what part went missing. I was basically saying, okay, the house is under construction. They're building a house across the street. There's all these distracting noises. We're talking about focus, and I just keep thinking about all these noises and if they're going to be in the audio and, and losing my train of thought and. Um, and all of that. And then the, uh, the, we, the Zoom line just disconnects. And so I have a moment of just straight pause. And the, you know what came to mind without really thinking about it? I'm like, how amazing is it that we're having this conversation remotely on Zoom, talking about all of this and pouring into myself. I'm getting blessed by this, but anyone that's listening to this as well as being able to learn from what you had to learn in the trenches and I'm like, that's the silver lining right there. So yeah, there's some technical difficulties occasionally, but how amazing is it that we could do this? We probably would have never met otherwise. That's right. And, and the other thing is you can keep figuring out how you can uh, upgrade your equipment or your processes so that there's less chance of, of audible sounds causing a problem. I mean, it's amazing, you know, what, what is available today that keeps the periphery, sound away mm -hmm. so there there's always a silver lining of some sort it may not be preferable to what we originally wanted initially but i do believe that that there's an opportunity um in in every adversity trouble trauma that we face and it's 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 a little bit like what we were talking about um I think before we went live, which is if you, if you, um, have, if you really believe that God has great plans for you, then you have to a little bit assume, I mean, if logically that whatever happens is part of the process for getting you there, just like if I want to build my chest muscles. I can't get to a stronger, bigger chest without adding a little more resistance and a little more weight. So these little, whether it's a daily relationship frustration, business frustration, um, those frustrations and that tension are, are growth catalyst. And, you know, some people in, in marriage will think that tension and stress means, oh my gosh, I might have married the wrong person. Well, our marriage is in trouble. Yeah, our marriage is in trouble. This is ominous. And, and well, I mean, I don't know the details, but more than likely, it means that growth is trying to take place. Growth cannot take place when you're blissful. Growth takes place when there's a little bit of a disconnect and you resolve it. And without that, you just stay flat in a, 
a business or a marriage that stays flat is is in trouble. Yeah, yeah, that's so right. And in this this remote podcasting world, <laughs> it if it went perfect, then you would never be motivated like to improve your processes. You're like, ah, it it you know it it's all about the the small glitches are what make you realize you could do better. And then yeah, you start like researching and and looking for it. But if you didn't have even a little hiccup, you may not even be motivated. You may think, ah, it's good enough. I, I like that. I wasn't even exactly thinking of it like that, but that's that's a better, I mean, that applies to everything. You know, if you, if you realize you, you know, you ended up eating um, suboptimal dinner, and the reason was, was uh, you hadn't really thought about your dinner. And since you didn't really think about your dinner because you were caught up in everything else, you found yourself at 8.15 at night with not the right ingredients at your house and didn't really want to go out. That was going to take long. So you end up eating what you had. Well, if you look at that positively, then you go, okay, I might need to work. I need to develop a better process, yes. you know, and I need to, and then we won't have that again. So that's one of the things I, I, I really love about my work is the idea of, of, you know, never ending fine tuning, never ending refinement. I love the word optimal. That's one of our brands is achieving optimal. It doesn't, it's not achieving perfection, but it's like, you know, you finish a workout. How could I have made that better? And you know, what's great about the word optimal, optimal is not a finish line because you get optimal, and once you're there, you realize, oh wait, I can actually even tweak this even more. Like you're, there's always more than you thought. Like you set the goal, you know, I want to eat healthier. It starts with just substitutions, and then three years later, you're packing food in your carry-on because you want to make sure you're not eating the air food, airport food, and you're making sure your Airbnb has a kitchen you can cook in. And you're shipping stuff to it before you get there. You know, like the, the tweaking continues and continues and continues, but it doesn't start at all unless you decide you want to get better. You have to make that decision. And then when you make a decision and you can apply that on the business side, the health side, the relationship, when you make that decision, everything else flows from it because part of mindset is decision making. So once you've made the decision, people sometimes want to wait for let. I'll wait and see, mm -hmm. I'll play it by ear. And the wait and see competes with what you were just describing, which is knowing the outcome that you'd like, and then constantly getting closer and closer to the bullseye, calling the hotel to make sure they have a sufficient workout area. And if they don't, how close is the, is the closest, you know, health club and will they let you come in with a one day pass? I mean, it's really, it's not rocket science type of stuff. Um, I had a friend who used to go around speaking and he would, uh, he had, um, he, he, he sold these great whey isolate proteins and he, he did these health lectures and he would bring, he would walk into the room. So we'd often entertain him at, at my coaching center and he'd walk in, there'd be a crowd of people. He'd walk in with a cooler. And in his cooler, he had his uh, supplements and he had his morning shake and his afternoon shake. And I said, did you just like do all that at the hotel? And I, I really appreciate what he did. 
he, he, his office, they have like four Vitamixers and four sets of stuff. And they are just, he has like a logistical person to make sure that he has his food and supplements at the next location that he's going to speak. <laughs> so he gets to a hotel and they would, they would say, Hey, we've got a box for you. And it was a Vitamixer. And, you know, he would make shakes with water when he was at a hotel. It was his protein powder, his supplements, all that stuff. And there'd be a return receipt, you know, so he would, before he left that hotel, he'd go down and have the return receipt on the stuff and they'd send it back. And I just thought maybe that's overkill, but it was kind of cool at the same way. Here's my thought on that. And because I love it. And my thought is, is when you travel, it's typically an excuse for you to basically drop every habit you have. It's like, ah, I'm traveling. And that can be okay if it's five days or a week. Okay, it's not a big deal. If you eat healthy 51 weeks of the year, you should basically be able to eat junk for a week and be completely fine. Like, what's the point of eating healthy if your body's not vers like strong enough to handle one week of no sleep or low sleep or not as much water or not as much exercise. If it works, it should be able to handle that. And I used to use that as my excuse. I would travel and I wouldn't work out or I wouldn't eat as well. And I'd be like, hey, it's just one week. It's not a big deal. But do you know what I realized after doing that for long enough was it wasn't one week. It was actually much, much longer because when I got back home, it took me two or three weeks to get back on my routine at the level I was before I left. And so that week just slowed you down so much that it actually was more like six weeks. Yeah. Plus it's reflective of, of, um, a, a su suboptimal mindset. I mean, I will not many because they, they wouldn't tell, they wouldn't want to fess up, but you know, if I asking somebody, okay, tell me about, uh, your nutrition and your exercise over the last week. And if they start off with, well, the last week or so I've been traveling a lot. I just know it's not going to be good news. Or or it was there was a family party and a wedding and so <laughs> Yeah, it was my sixteen year old daughter's birthday and then we went up to the lake for the weekend and I'm like, Yeah, so but especially the travel thing because that is so solvable these days. In fact, even the airports are getting better. They have less bad options for you, you know, depending on what your objective is. It's not like it was uh, 20 years ago where there was virtually nothing mm -hmm. that you could eat that would keep your blood sugar stable or, or, or be low carb or anything like that. Now there's lots of options, but the idea of how do you stay on track with your fitness when it's inconvenient is the same kind of mindset of uh, how do you keep your business profitable in a difficult market? Or how do you keep your marriage strong when you're not getting along like you used to? In other words, if you can only perform in optimal circumstances, you can't perform. Who Anybody could do that. You're right. That's true. That's not actually performance if it's in, if the wind was perfect, the weather was perfect, your clothing was perfect, your sleep was perfect. If that's the only time you can do it, then are you actually a high achiever or... Are you not? I don't know. Right. You're, are you just coasting? And so then at the second that adversity hits, you bail or you self-destruct. Um, that's a big problem. But, but we can grow into being the type of person that will do well with life. 
The one thing I notice about health specifically and finances, uh, a lot of times people that have been struggling to have good health or good finances for a long time have some horribly traumatic illness or financial thing happen. And then that's finally like what hits the switch. And they're like, all right, now I'm going to do the work to really turn this around. It's like almost a cliche. It's so common. You see someone who was really unhealthy and then all of a sudden you see them a year later and they're super healthy. Like what happened? And they go, oh, I went to the doctor and they told me I had this. And I just realized it was time to do something. And you're like, well, you knew for, you told me 10 years ago you weren't healthy and you wanted to do something about it. Why did it take that to be the catalyst? And it happens so frequently. It's like, I think psychologists call that a significant emotional event. And most people, certainly the masses, won't change outside of a significant emotional event. Somebody walk, comes home, and their spouse has left. They go to the doctor and they said, you've got to have open heart surgery. They lose a deal they weren't expecting to lose and they find themselves completely out of money. And it creates that significant emotional event that spurs the change. It's, and, and I think one way or another, everybody's going to either change for the better on their own terms or be forced to change on the world's terms. So it's really much wiser to make yourself better before circumstances get tougher, like to, to grow ahead of the curve of life or, or to earn um, beyond the rate of inflation, if you will. There's probably some kind of metaphor in there, but you know, whatever the external circumstance is you, that you can't do anything about as an individual, well, you can, I like how uh, the speaker, great speaker, Jim Rohn used to say it, say it. He goes, the problem is not that things cost too much. The problem is that you don't earn enough. <laughs> but if yeah. you can't solve the problem, we can't solve the problem that things cost too much, but it is solvable. We can earn more. We can become more effective. We can add more value to other people. And then we don't have to worry about how much things cost. You think you talk a lot about goal setting and looking 10, 20, 30 years into the future. Do you think that those tools are a way to make it so you're not waiting until the wheels fall off the bus to take action? Absolutely. I mean, I, I love... I love 30 years out and I really, really love 10 years out. In fact, we call it in our super focus program, we call the 10 year window, your master vision. And it's not a rolling 10 years, meaning it's not a constant 10 years. So if I worked with you, you know, yesterday on your master vision, and then a year from now, that master vision will be nine years away and then eight years away and then seven years away. But there's kind of two ways that people make decisions about their present. They make decisions about their present based on their present. In other words, this is where I am today. Therefore, my next move in my business, in my life, and my health is going to be this. That's logical. That's nothing awful about that. Then the other group of people 
which in my estimation are far, far more successful and our, all our coaching is aimed at these individuals is we make decisions in the present based on what we want the future to look like. Mm -hmm. And, but the, the natural thing to do for many people, I don't know if it's natural or it's just, you know, the masses way of thinking is here's where I am. What should I do next? And I say, that's slightly the wrong question. It's where do you want to be? What do you want your marriage to be like a decade from now? Uh, what do you want to be a hundred percent true in your life a decade from now that is not a hundred percent true now? Let's just identify those things. Don't get hung up in how or if they can come to be. So those aren't so much goals as they are the conditions of your life. What would happen if you were a high performer and hit all your goals for the next decade? What would your life look like? And that is really what we address in the Super Focus program is first figure out what that looks like and then make sure that every step you take is moving you toward that master vision. And if it's, if it's not, then we need to get it out of the field of play. We want to move the things that, that are neutral or pull you back or sideways. We want to get them out of the mix and make you focus just on those things that move the needle maritally, you know, spiritually, physically, financially, so that you can get to where you want to be and really where you ought to be and and back to that equation of the best that God wants for you. I mean, you believe God has great plans for you. You believe your creator wants you to use all of your potential. If so, the minimum you can do is define what that looks like and then not do things that clearly pull you in the opposite direction. I love... 20 year and 30 year goals specifically because you can't easily figure out how to achieve them in one second. You, right, they're right. too big. They're way too big um, to, to do that. And so you, if you write down a 30 year goal for your physical fitness, like if I wrote a one year goal for my physical fitness, like a new year's resolution, which those almost always fail, it would be like, all right, I'm going to gain five pounds of muscle this year. Okay, I'd probably fail at that. If I set a 30-year goal for my physical fitness, it might be I want to be able to lift my kids over my head and have my blood levels look clean and good and still be getting a great night of sleep. Those aren't like actions. Those are like targets. And then I can reverse engineer it to get there. What do I need to do today so in 30 years that will be true? And I think because you can't wait, way. let's use the 20 year mark. You can't wait till you're 17, 18, 19 and make those things happen. It's impossible. Yeah. Yeah. You, so, so, but if you've been making your decisions, what, what should I do next? Like climbing the rung of a ladder. There's some logic to it. So I see why that happens. Or even in the old school model that everybody's ingrained into is first grade, second grade. There could some benefits to that. It seems logical. But really, the person who's got the advantage is they're looking at uh, beyond the top rung of the ladder. And they're identifying, well, what happens if I get to the top of this ladder? Is this leaning against the right place, number one? And am, is that big enough for me? Do I need a bigger ladder? But people that are not looking beyond the top rung of the ladder aren't even asking those kinds of questions. They're just going to the next rung on the ladder 
And then all of a sudden they find themselves, they'll go like, is this all there is? <laughs> you know? And that's an, that's probably one of the worst emotional discoveries of all is when you ask yourself that question at some point in your life, is this all there is? And that means that you were, you were planning from today forward versus from the future back. And some people give that, um, you know, lip service, but we really push people to define it. And then we hold them accountable and we say, okay, let's take that to the next level. Let's take that to the next level. Is this something that would excite you to do different things in the present and then follow a, a process to get you to that best life that you can imagine? And just not many people think about that. Is the reason you talk about family and health in it and faith in addition to your wealth and your career? I mean, I know, is it because you really can't achieve career success and wealth success if you don't also have success in those other areas? Yeah, I think it's um, my niche has become helping entrepreneurs who are financially successful get to the next level economically without screwing up their faith, their family, and their health. And you, do, you, you don't have to try very hard to look around the world to see uh, broke, you know, a trail of broken relationships. You know, you've got great financial success, but the, but the person was never around. And, you know, you, you can't make relationships work. You can't uh, really create significance in, in relationships or in your character if you're just focused on the material aspects of life. But there's, there's two things that I think are, uh, or two ways, to, you know, excuses almost. Some people go, well, you know, I'm really a, a great family man or, and, you know, family's really important to me. And they say that as an excuse for being mediocre in their finances. And I think that's unacceptable. And then, then there's people who, who do it the other way. And they said, you know, yeah, I've sacrificed my family a little bit, but, um, but you know, I've been a great provider. I'm saying either one of those, those are t flawed choices. That's not the option. You can be a, a balanced model of excellence by focusing on what you do better than most people and by being more thoughtful in how you run your life. And then most especially by what you say no to. So most people who had good intentions, who end up drifting off course, ended up saying yes to the wrong things too often. And it diluted them and barely perceptibly, it altered the course of where they could have been by having that overactive, call it an overactive yes gland. They just, you know, and you've got to resist that. Yeah, the so I, I recently I can't believe it took me so long to discover him, but the author Bob Goff, and he wrote a book called Undistracted, which was most recent release, and before that, one of his he wrote a book called Love Does, which was super popular, but my favorite book of his was actually Dream Big, and he outlined this principle of his where it was say no Thursday where every Thursday, or quit Thursday, something like that, 
every Thursday he'll delete something from his life that no longer serves him. It may be a volunteering thing he's on. It may be a habit. It may be uh, a call that he's on or a business endeavor. He, he, he says no and removes it and doesn't just do them forever. Not because he doesn't have the time to do them possibly, but so that he has time to say yes to the right things. And you can't say yes to the right things if you're always busy doing the things you shouldn't be doing anymore. Yeah, and they're they're um, if you are entangled in the little things, you can't be freed to do the big things. And there's there's a constraint of time and mental energy. So we have a concept we call it genius, and it's not Einstein genius. I think of it as entrepreneurial genius. But it ends up benefiting the the whole individual, and that is identifying as early as possible where you have highly refined strengths. And I like to think of it like this. Your genius is at the intersection of where you're most passionate and most brilliant. It's where, where that excellence and fun collide. So you, you are able, you, you are good at what you do in that area and it is very enjoyable because it's very enjoyable. It doesn't seem like work. So you put more in, so you become better and it snowballs and you are disproportionately better than anybody else in the marketplace in that area. And because of that, you can, you can create results in a disproportionately smaller amount of time, which means you can have more time to get into elite physical condition, to work on your faith, to build stronger relationships with your family. But if you're a jack of all trades, if you're a yes man, you know, in every sense of the word, then you're undercutting what's possible for you. That makes a lot of sense. And for me, when I set my 20 year goals, I do them in seven buckets, like, and, and actually faith, family, health and financial, the things you talk a lot about are four of the seven buckets that I, I talk about. What are the others? What are the others? I'm curious now. Okay. So it's mind, body, and spirit. Okay. So body is your physical, spirit is your faith, your mind is your intellectual, and then there's family, and then there's friends, which I always say friends slash community. So it's not just your friends, but it's also your neighbors and the town you live and like your actual local impact. And then the final two are finances and career. Now, when I dreamed 20-year goals for what I wanted to do with my career, I wrote down I wanted to be a speaker, a podcaster, and an author, and a coach. And this was like four years ago. I wasn't doing any of those things. I was like, this is just what I would love to be doing. It just seems like it would. I love to read. I love to coach people. It just seems like it'd be a great fit for my natural talents wasn't doing any of them yet. And so I'm like, well, I better start writing. I better start a podcast. I better start interviewing people. I better find some people that I can continue to coach. And I started working on it in, in that way. Unfortunately, when it, it's, it's, it's not right now what's paying the bills. It's my passion and it's what I love doing, but it's going to take maybe 10 years before it can replace the income from my entrepreneurial things that I love doing, but they're not the same as this other area of what I do. Yeah. Well, that's all right. So how do you, but I can't give it the focus that it would need yet to, to really blossom. 
Well, that's where there's a, you know, it's a catch 22. Um, and it's kind of like if there's some way to, um, uh, to measure this, that would be optimal in whether it's on a monthly basis or quarterly basis, keep increasing the quantity of time or how you implement what you really love to do so that it's either better or more to where it's gradually displacing the others. But I've told clients for years and years, it doesn't matter whether it takes you a year, a decade or two decades. When, when you finally arrive at your genius, um, it'll be a little bit like you've, you've come back home, you know, and you're in your true place and you're not going to go, you're not going to be mad or bitter that it took you a decade or even two decades. You're just going to go, now I'm really living the dream and it'll be worth whatever price you had to pay and enjoy the journey. I mean, you, what you're ready for is ready for you. So that, that's, that's one side. The other is is at some point you're going to be propositioned with the opportunity. Do I continue growing at the pace that I'm growing or do I take a leap? And when you take a leap, it's not always prudent. I'm not saying that, but sometimes taking a leap is the catalyst that forces you to have an adjustment in your mind that will propel you to where you want to go faster. But as long as you keep your foot on first base, you can't get to second, but you could be thrown out trying to steal second, but you could make it, you know? And so sometimes like I, I had a client that, that had a, a child that was born with a, a bad birth defect unexpectedly, you know, and he was like in the delivery room and it happened and shocking, you know, and he had a $10 million company and just floored him and, you know, um, he turned his business over to, uh, another guy and he was kind of took a quarterly leave of absence and the business had its best quarter ever. <laughs> and he was smart enough to realize that was a sign to focus on what he does best, which was more strategic. So he's been a chairman in a chairman role, a visionary role for the last 20 years, started at a young age, you know, maybe 32, becoming like a chairman of his own company and a visionary and a strategist. And he realized somebody else was better at executing the business. So he was forced to take a leap and then was blessed as a result of taking the leap. But sometimes entrepreneurs realize, you know what, things are kind of stagnant. I'm going to, if I just take a leap, it's going to cut off the other sources of of income for me. So therefore I will have to be crafty and, and, uh, ingenious in figuring out how to make that up. But as long as I have this other source, I'm going to be biased toward the other source. So there's not like a perfect solution, but at some point, uh, it's going to require being very scared. Like, like, um, like you can't grow until you have that very scary moment. Like the first time I, uh, went skydiving, you know, it was, 
I don't know whether it was more scary or more exciting, but, <laughs> um, but when you go out the, when you file or when the plane takes off from the runway, I mean, there's kind of no turning back. I mean, cause you certainly don't want to be the guy that comes back still sitting in the back of the plane. But when you go out that they're rocking you and you go out that door, I mean, you really realize that like in about 20 seconds, what was purely fear you realized was actually excite excitement trying to, but the fear was trying to kill your growth, trying to kill your excitement. And when you overcame it, you overrode it through a conscious decision or somebody stronger and bolder in your life who's right there with you and push you out the door. Then all of a sudden you realize this was my true destiny, not, it's not staying on the plane and landing back with the pilot is the lame guy that wouldn't go for it. Do you know, that just made me think how close fear and excitement are related to each other to where fear that could be making you sick to your stomach and unable to move, almost unable to speak, one minute later can be just bliss. And like that seems like a like a leap that should be impossible to happen in less than a minute. But it's so, it almost feels like it could be an indicator. Like if you have that much fear for it, is bliss right there on the other side of it? And that should be your sign that I'm almost wondering, because so many moments in my life, I was scared to death and then made a choice and then did it. And immediately it turned into bliss. Well, you know how we were talking about the, um, uh, who was it? Christy said, uh, this is going to be a great story. Yeah. Or I would say that's great when it really wasn't to me when, when I'm fearful, it's a very similar experience as excitement, except I've kind of assumed with no facts, I've kind of assumed that the conclusion of this is going when it, when it's fear, the conclusion of this is going to be negative. And when it's excitement, I've assumed without any facts that the conclusion of this is going to be positive. So on the one hand, with fear, my body's churning up a whole bunch of cortisol. And with the excitement, it's, you know, endorphins. And, and it, you know, so then when you, when you overcome fear, whether it's through just facing it and moving, moving on or through progressive desensitization, it, it, it's like anything else. It'll be easier the next time. And you can become a person who is not driven or strangled by fear, but they're very, they're very similar. And, um, I don't remember who it was, but it's, uh, when, when you, when you have that, I can't, because I'm scared, it should almost be, I must, I must, because you realize that you're a growth oriented person and you can't let fear stop you back. I mean, that would be a real picture of hell, wouldn't it? To, you know, at the end of your earthly life, to see all the things that were waiting for you that were going to be bountiful and awesome beyond your comprehension. And you said no to them because of fear. I mean, I don't know what would be more painful than seeing a, uh, a trailer of those moments. Yeah, could you imagine? It's like 
well, this was the end of this book of your life, but we had to rip those pages out because you never did the middle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What, what, what if, what if there was, you know, what if Lord of the Rings would have ended pretty quickly if they weren't, you know, get, didn't get over their fear of leaving the Shire and be like, Oh, that was a short book. <laughs> yeah. What if, you know, it's a kind of a great question. You know, what if I was unafraid of anything in my life? One of my mentors shared with me, what if I was unafraid of anything in my life? What would I do differently right now? Yeah. What, 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 that is a great question. I think that's the question I need to continually ask with my writing and my podcasting and speaking is, well, what if I ask that person to come on my show? And they, they might say yes. Or what if I sign up for that event or that training or that class? Like, I think that that looking at the what if and out of excitement leads you to going for it and fear leads you to retreating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Fear makes you realize what could go wrong. Right. And that's a, you could, I could make a list of a hundred, I, you know, we're, I feel like, I don't know if it's humans or if it's just me, I'm a master at seeing what could go wrong. It's so easy going and finding what could go right. takes a lot more effort. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with, with anticipating contingencies or crises, but it shouldn't be your default MO as far as your mindset. It should be by appointment only. I'm, I'm all for dealing with worry or going over contingencies by appointment only. I say mm -hmm. negativity by appointment only. When are you going to moan and groan and whine uh, on Wednesdays from three to four? Okay. <laughs> then you've got your act together. But if you're going to drip, drip, drip all week long, a little bit of negativity here, a little bit of negativity there, a little bit of negativity here, then that's going to be a real problem. We have this concept with couples that is called issue time, and it's about trying to channel any of your complaints or gripes with your spouse into a specific appointment time. And what happens there is it makes the rest of your life much more uh, close and harmonious because you've you've you haven't denied that there's issues because everybody has issues. You've just quarantined them. You compartmentalize them so that they don't spill through the rest of your week. And what I found is a lot of people will, you know, they'll, that I can convince to do it because it's not, it's countercultural. You have a gripe in your mind, write it down. It goes out of your mind. So it's on the note card. It's, it's in the app, wherever it is, it's out of your mind. And then you know that at nine o'clock at night, y'all are going to go over your gripes or non-positive things. If there's anything to talk about. What's so weird is if that was like at six o'clock when you noted the gripe that you had with your spouse, by the, by the time nine o'clock rolls around, not all, but most of them don't matter anymore. And so people begin to realize only by the act of writing or inputting or documenting, they start to realize that they can be temporarily upset at, at so many things, but that temporary upset can cause permanent relational damage. And if they would just let a little bit of time pass, they'll see that that was silly and I should never ever have brought it up to my husband or my wife or whatever it is. The I'm I'm going through John Eldridge's pause app and it's a 30 days to resilience program. And it's like eight to 10 minutes in the morning and eight to 10 minutes in the evening. And one of the practices that they're teaching, and I'll end on this and then let you have a chance to uh, talk about super focus and where to learn more about you and, 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 and before we wrap up, but 
this is such a funny story because it's right with what you just said. So the practice that you start doing in this is benevolent detachment. And I never really heard that. It's basically like for just a short time, you just give everything back to God. You say, you know, all the people, all the things, everything in my life, you hold on them for a minute just so you have a second of breath so you don't worry about them. But then, so I learned this practice and then I heard this story of a handyman that was helping a guy at his house and everything was going wrong. His tools weren't working. It was just a tough day and he was just moaning and swearing and and just everything was wrong that day and he gets ready to leave. His car won't start so he can't even drive home. So the owner of the home drives the guy to his house and they're talking and talking about all the things going on in his life and when they get to the house he's like oh do you want to come in for a minute and meet my family he's like yeah sure and the the handyman starts walking to the house and touches this branch on a tree right outside the door of the house and just walks into the house and his face is lit up he's smiling from ear to ear he's asking about how everyone's day was he's talking about all the great things in his day and it's like a switch went off it was bizarre it was almost like the twilight zone and so the guy's just standing there watching this and he has no clue what happened and they leave the house and he walks him back to the car and he's like can you tell me what on earth is up with with that like you touched a tree and then you're like a changed man he's like oh the tree he's like oh he's like that's where i hang all my problems and all the worries and all the issues from the day I just, I just hang them there when I get home so I can be completely present and loving with my family. And then the next morning when I head out to work, I go back to the tree and I grab all the things that I hung there. But do you know what's crazy? He says to the handyman, there's never as many things hanging there the next morning as there was the night before. Some of them just disappear. God takes care of them. And I'm like, man, that is so good. Yeah, I love that. And it's... Um, it, it, but you know, that's mental. So that just, that kind of comes back again to say that, that life is a mental game. Um, it's about mindset. And when you, that, that is a, that was a mental exercise, a mental drill that changed, you know, that, that, that illustrates that if we get our head right, we can get our life right. But if we try to make our life right, fitness, finances, relationships without getting our head right. It's, it creates that bungee cord effect where through sheer willpower, you're able to make a positive change. But if you haven't changed your mindset, then the bungee cord is going to snap back to its original position. But once you've changed your mindset, the bungee cord will be permanently stretched and it's not going back. And I think that's why a lot of people don't tap into their full potential is because they just try to will themselves through it. They try to change from the outside in versus the inside out, meaning mind to world. They try to change from world to mind and it just doesn't work in reverse like that. That makes a lot of sense. This super focus program is based on, it's based on the 4A principle, but really the applications to, to build sort of the, the pieces that stack on top of each other to become this type of person. I mean, who who should be thinking about your program and checking it out, do you think? Yeah, well, um, this, the Super Focus program is a 25-year program that we've been doing that is now a virtual program. So anybody anywhere in the world can get access to it. It's hybrid. 
meaning when you sign up for it, we FedEx your materials to you, but the lessons and the teaching and the, the live cast are something that you can attend virtually. But this is for an entrepreneurially minded person who wants to get to the next level financially, but doesn't want to screw up their faith, their family, and their health. And so we teach a process that over time people master beginning with creating that vision for the what they want their life to look like a decade in the future. That's what we call the master vision. And then we help them develop the daily and the weekly rituals that move them in that direction. And so it's a, a, it's a year to, I mean, it's a, a perpetual program. Every month I'm live with these leaders, entrepreneurial leaders. I'm live doing a live cast, answering questions, celebrating victories, coaching. But then behind that is a curriculum of sequential courses that are building on one another um, that they go through the release one month at a time. And then we're constantly a force in their life. So it's probably the most cost effective thing we've ever done because we're able to provide for a, a, a nominal amount of money, the same coaching practices, the same coaching tools that people are paying us 10, 20, $30,000 a year to participate in person. And we essentially become, you know, the, the personal trainer for somebody's life through this program. So, so it's very simple, but if you have hit a wall and you're, you're making it on the financial side, but the rest of your life isn't where you want it or in the reverse, you've made it on the financial side, but, but then the family part, the health part is not working optimal. Then we can help you achieve the right goals faster with this super focused process. And, and it's all about process. It's not about information. It's about doing the right things consistently. I love that. And where do you go to check that out? Superfocusprogram.com, superfocusprogram.com or tommynewberry.com. But you can go either, either route takes you there. And more of it is while the 4-8 principle undergirds everything that we do in our coaching, this program is, is, is really rooted. In fact, the orientation is called the success is not an accident orientation. And that is basically how do I get intentional with all of my life? And so that is based on, um, you know, the getting on clarity and the 4A principle is based on mindset. So clarity plus mindset plus process, you know, creates great results. And so we, we have people from all over the world uh, participating in this and it, it brings people to, to the right ideas without the overload of what we call the um, self-help junkie or the self-help <laughs> overload. Yeah. Like I love to read. I know you love to read from what you've said. I would have a tendency to buy this book, follow this person's process, buy this book. And we, we've said, you know what? We're going to give you a simple, straightforward process. Uh, sure, feed yourself as much positive mental nutrition from other people, but follow our process. Support yourself with other people's ideas for sure, 
follow our process if you want to be focused because dabbling in this person and then this person and then this guru and then this guru we we find is so counterproductive such good intentions but so counterproductive follow our process and you get focused at a level that you haven't been before i love it i will link to your website your books and the super focus program on the show notes for this episode and to your social media accounts and everything else. Um, I am curious. I didn't ask about it, but I would love to hear just a tiny bit about it if, if you've got an extra minute. The Blackberry Farm. My wife is a um, natural foods farm to table. We buy everything at the farmer's market, cook everything from scratch. We've been looking at Blackberry Farm as a place to take a vacation. And then when I was reading your stuff, I realized at least at one point you were doing marriage seminars there. Are you still doing that? And where do people learn about those? Yeah, we are doing, um, for 14 years, um, Blackberry Farm uh, in Tennessee near Knoxville in the foothills of the Smoky Mountains was our go-to place for an annual event for our clients and their spouses. And it is world-class. It's, um, uh, it's something that should be on everybody's this is going to sound crazy, but like their lifetime goal list, because it is a, uh, a very expensive getaway that is of the highest quality. In other words, if you if you're going to really treat yourself and the things you talked about, uh, farm to table and organic food, but but also world class taste, world class service. Uh, it's just amazing. Um, we now do our couples planning retreat is what it's called. And couplesplanningretreat.com, just like it sounds, um, is an annual event to help husband and wife uh, get closer by being intentional with how they uh, run their marriages and lead their lives and how they um, interact with their husband or wife. And we do that every year. We're doing it at another awesome place in this upcoming January and really every January, and it's called Palmetto Bluff. Oh, uh, but we do, we always pick a resort that is attractive so that it's a fun getaway. And it's, you know, we have a high, high uh, return rate, like a high recidivism rate. When we were at Blackberry, we had, uh, I don't know, 40, 50 couples that came every single one of those 14 years. Wow. And they weren't coming because Tommy's teaching them something new. They were coming, and we we know this definitively, they came because they said the process made the next 12 months of their marriage work better. And that helped us, in fact, fix and upgrade and elevate all of our other programs. We realized people don't have an intent problem, they have a process problem. And so whether it's on the, the marriage side or the entrepreneurial side, we push processes that make getting to the next level simple and as fun as it can possibly be. But I think my couples retreat has done more to change families than any other single thing that I've done because it is, I mean, when you, when you alter the course of somebody's marriage, in most cases, you're altering their children's lives. Um, we now have second generation attendees. In other words, wow. people's parents who came to Blackberry Farm in the in the nineties and the two thousands. We've now got their children uh, coming, you know, as being married three or four years and they're 
in some cases their parents have gifted it to them because it's, you know, it's a, it's a luxurious weekend. And, but then if you impact the children, you're impacting their children. You're impacting who those children will end up marrying and the legacy that they're leaving. So we call it the couples planning retreat, but it really could be called the legacy program because the, where you leave your biggest legacy is going to be with your family. Yeah, that's a, that's awesome. And I'm so grateful that you're doing this and that you're sharing everything that you've learned. And, uh, this was just a lot of fun. So thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. It was uh, fun on my end as well. Thanks for listening to this episode of the James Quandall show. The show notes for this episode and other goodies can be found at quandall.com. Are you enjoying the show? If you are, please subscribe and leave a review. I may end up reading your review live on the next episode. Subscribing, leaving a review, and telling your friends about the show is the best way to support me and help the show grow. See you next time. Yeah.